Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10. Um, we're going to be looking at several passages this morning, but that's going to be our starting passage. So if you go from there uh, to verse 19, that would be, that'd be great. That'd be super. Um, we've been moving through the Bible, looking at just, a, again, a, a broad overview of the story of God as it's presented in Scripture. Uh, we've looked at various aspects of His character and His nature as we've moved through uh, the different segments of the Bible and how they present Him, how they uh, communicate who He is. And um, today we come to the uh, the epistles, the Pauline and the general epistles. The general epistles are called that because um, they don't have a specific audience as do the Pauline epistles. In Paul, Paul's epistles, you read the letter to Ephesus or the letter to Philippi or the letter to Thessalonica and so forth. The general epistles, on the other hand, are are more wide-ranging. They're, they're a broader audience in terms of who they're addressing and, and who they're speaking to. Um, and so that's why they have that particular title. But both sets, both Paul's epistles and the general epistles, have uh, a lot of things in common. They are letters written to believers uh, trying to communicate to them certain truths of what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom. We've already looked at what Jesus had to say about being uh, a part of the kingdom. When we talked about his parables uh, and so forth in the Sermon on the Mount and that particular message. Um, but as things begin to, to play out, as things begin to happen, as things begin to, to uh, be uh, embodied in the church, um, some questions arise. Issues begin to rear their heads uh, because uh, we're not perfect. Christians are not perfect. And as the church begins to, to share the message of Christ and experience the growth and experience the life that comes from that, um, that imperfection can sometimes find expression in the relationships that are present. And not only that, but as the church begins to grow and, and spread into new regions, Forces from the outside begin to express themselves in new ways. I mean, we see in, in Acts and in the life of Jesus as well how the, the church, or how, excuse me, how Judaism right there in, in Jerusalem responded to the church. But now, as we, we get into Paul's letters and, and beyond, um, we start to see how the Romans begin to interact with the church. And the conflict and the struggles and the persecution that is a part of that reality. Now, our church today here, uh, especially in America, doesn't face that kind of persecution, doesn't face that kind of hardship. But that doesn't mean life's not hard. That doesn't mean we don't face struggles. That doesn't mean that that we don't have our own baggage to deal with our own hurts, sometimes self-inflicted, sometimes brought on us from the outside. And so I want to look at um, the letters today just in terms of their, their general themes, two general themes in particular, and, and what, what they have to say to us about who we are and, and how we reflect the king that we serve, how we reveal the kingdom that we live with. And so we start here in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. 
It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to, for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and the good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews here is reflecting upon life and the difficulties that we have. And he, he begins with that recognition of the fact that we have a confidence to, to approach the throne of grace, to approach God, to, to, to connect with him, to, to pray to him, to, to find power from him. And he says that, that we, can, we can live these lives that are different, that are distinct, that are, that are significant because our hearts have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. And because the one who has promised us he would be with us is faithful. Jesus is with us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us if we are believers. And we walk in that assurance. We walk in that power. But just as we reflected back in, in Eden, if you remember back in Genesis, we, we, we said that there's that interesting statement there as God is creating, and he says it's not good that man should be alone. And we noted that, that at that time when, G, when God says that, Adam's in perfect relationship with God. There's no sin, there's no barrier, there's no, there's no conflict between man and God. Adam had a perfect relationship with God, and yet God still acknowledged there's a part of him that God wasn't going to fill. And so he makes what? He makes the woman. He makes community to fill that part of who we are. And that's what the writer of Hebrews communicates to us here as well. He, he spends that first time, that first part of this passage, talking about what? Talking about our connection with God through Jesus Christ. That we've been made clean. We've been made whole. We've been, we've been changed and transformed. But then he goes on to say what? That's not necessarily enough. We need what? We need the community of faith. We need to gather together. We need to encourage each other. We need to support one another. And, and, and in this passage, we, we then see kind of the, 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 the two aspects, the two institutions that God created to express his kingdom. And those are the church and the family. Two institutions that, that God created to, in, in essence, be kind of a firewall. To, 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 be that, to be that break between us and the world. If you don't know what I'm talking about, um, a lot of times in, in forest fires, one of the things that firefighters will do to, to stop the spread is they'll, they'll, they'll create a firewall. They'll, they'll burn something else so that the fire can't go any further than that. 
And in some ways, that's kind of what the church and the family are, are designed to be. That's what they're meant to be. They are, they're a wall that God has created between us and the world. They're, they're a wall that, that is meant to protect and to insulate, but also to encourage and, 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 and drive us into encountering the world out there with the message of the gospel. So this morning, I want to look through the epistles and, and look at what they have to say about these two institutions, the church and the family. The first one we come to is, is the church. And as you look through the epistles, as you look through the letters, you, you encounter these, these key themes, these key ideas about who the church is supposed to be and, and how we're supposed to function. And, and, and this is not by any means an exhaustive list. This is not a complete uh, appraisal of what these uh, particular epistles have to say about the church or about our relationship with each other and those sorts of things. These are just some key themes that we see played out in these texts. In Romans chapter 14, Paul, focusing in on the issue of unity, which is the mandate of the church, let us be one. Okay. Remember in John chapter 17, as Jesus is praying there, the high priestly prayer, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for us, his church. And he says, Father, I pray that they'd be one, that they'd be unified. Now, I, I'll be honest, I think we've kind of lost our way in a lot of ways in the church overall in that reality. You look at the, the, just the sheer number of denominations. Okay, you look at the, the sheer number of churches. Just driving here, you know, from my house in, in Paulsville, just driving here, I don't know how many churches I pass. It's got to be easily in the double digits, just on the, just on the streets I drive on. So I think in some ways we've kind of failed in that reality. But that doesn't mean we should stop striving for it, pushing for it, because it is, I would say, the primary mandate of the letters, unity. And Paul says that the, the first, the way he would suggest we find unity is by having the right priorities. What are the things that are priorities for us? And in Romans 14, he, he says, you know, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it to honor the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead Paul here highlights and, and emphasizes that this, this priority of unity, that, that that should be first. And that we are going to differ on things. We're going to differ on what we prioritize in terms of our own personal faith. He says some, you know, some want to, in this culture, some want to worship every day, celebrate every day. God is here and we're going to worship every single day. And others say, and we need to have these distinctive days that are a part of our worship. 
Some are saying, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to eat any food that's been sacrificed to idols. Others are saying, idols aren't real. Following Paul's advice in 1 Corinthians 8, you know, there, there are no other gods than the true God, so it really doesn't bother my conscience to eat this meat because it's just meat at the end of the day. And Paul's saying, you know what, whether you have the priority not to eat or the priority to eat, make unity your priority as you go forward. That's a non-essential. That's, that's a side issue. But have respect and have regard and have deference to each other. Why? Because we belong to God. And that is an essential. We are not our own. We have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, we no longer live. Jesus Christ now lives in me, in us. And so Paul says, get those priorities in place. Stop emphasizing the color of the carpet or the, the stained glass windows or lack of stained glass windows or other things that, that churches so often get wrapped up in and emphasize our unity in Christ. The writer of Hebrews says we need unity to encourage one another. That's, that's where we started. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Too often I think the church is good at stirring up each other, but not to love and good works. That should be our goal. That should be our, our, our emphasis. James focused upon equality. He talked about how we're not to show favoritism because somebody has standing in community or, or somebody has wealth or whatever. They don't get a, a favored seat. They don't get the favored position. We realize that in Christ, we're all equal. Male and female. Jew and Gentile. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. And we acknowledge that. We live in that. We walk in that. Peter focused on the reality of forgiveness and the role that it plays in, in who we are as, as a church and the role that it plays in, in us finding unity with each other. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Finally, all of you, be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another. And be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. I think it's interesting. It, it kind of stands out to me that Peter is, is so focused upon forgiveness in his two letters because he's the one who had that famous exchange with Jesus. How many times should I forgive? Seven times? Jesus says, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. And I just have a sense in reading Peter's letters that that stuck with him. And as he's dealing with the church and as he's dealing with the conflict and the struggles of there, he's like, forgive, forgive over and over and over again. Forgive and not just forgive numerous times, but forgive the big stuff. Forgive the little stuff. Forgive it all. Just as Jesus forgave you, you forgive each other. 
That's how we're going to find unity. That's how we're going to find connection. That's how we're going to be the one voice. It's through forgiveness. John, likewise, focused upon love and its role. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He'd go on later on to say, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loveth God and knoweth God loveth. You can probably tell that I memorized that as a child because that was King James, wasn't it? I pulled out the loveth, the ETHs on the ends of words. That's one of those verses that just that just sticks with you. Love is of God, and everyone that loveth God knoweth God. How do we find unity? We love. What does Paul say about love in 1 Corinthians 13? It keeps no record of wrongs. To have that kind of mentality is to, is to find the unity that Christ prayed we would have. And then there's Jude. Jude's not one we, we generally focus on a whole lot. We don't read a lot from Jude. It's just a, it's one of those books that's just one page. You know, so it's really easy to kind of miss. Plus, there's some, let's be honest, there's some things in there that are kind of that's interesting. You know, that causes us to, to wonder. But there are some very powerful lessons in Jude, especially about the issue of truth. That's what the theme of the book of Jude is, that we need truth. We need to be united in the truth. We need to be united in what God has said and what God has said clearly. But if you're just focused upon truth as it is, that can actually be a divider. We've seen too often uh, in, in conventions and cultures and so forth where people are talking about, I'd, I'd rather be divided than together mean sacrificing the truth. And, and I understand the importance of truth in that context, but too often we pushed aside the, the issue of unity as one of the truths that God has called us to. And so Jude, in his proclamation of truth, also advocates for mercy. Verse 20, But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them out from the fire. Have mercy on others but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Christ had mercy on us. We should have mercy on each other. Unity is our mandate, and there are a variety of ways instructed to us in these letters to find that unity. But the other component of the church that these letters focus upon is the gospel. 
And the gospel is our voice. It's what we speak. It's what we communicate. And just as with the issue of unity, the gospel permeates the message of these letters. It it is a, a, a big part of what's communicated here. Paul tells us, and again, this is not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination. Paul tells us that Christ died for the ungodly. Hebrews says Christ died to, to do away with sin. A lot of times we, we, we miss that picture of salvation in our walk, in our ministry. It's not just that Jesus is saving us from our sins so that we can go to dwell with him in heaven. Dwell with him in eternity, in the new heaven, new earth. Jesus is saving us from the power of sin right now. Part of the reality of the Christian life is that there should be, as you grow and as you mature and as you understand more of the mind of God, there should be a decreasing frequency of the presence of sin in your life. There should be growth. There should be understanding. Now this side of of heaven and the, the glorified body, the transformation we're going to experience one day, we're not going to experience that perfection. But there should be visible, tangible growth in who we are, in our appreciation of God, in our understanding of God. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18 that God has, has saved us because Christ died for our sins. John, not just our sins, but the sins of the whole world. That's love. Even knowing some, many, would reject that gift. Many would look at the cross and see it as foolishness. Many would say, I can't believe somebody would die for someone else. Even knowing all that, knowing the, the countless people who would reject his gift of love and grace and sacrifice, Jesus still died for them. And then Jude. Jude uses a, a term that, that's, that's striking and interesting in verse 3 of his book. He, he talks about our, our common salvation or the salvation that we share. That Christ died, and this goes back to the to the unity idea, but it but it, it takes just a step back from that to talk about how we get here. And as I look around this room today, I see people from all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different uh, upbringings, financial differences right now, and and you know, some are very blue collar, and some are white collar, and some are uh, you know. Uh, from different aspects. Many of you are retired. Some of you are just getting started. And it's amazing. I don't know of any other setting in our culture where you would have this kind of diverse group come together for a single purpose. And that purpose is Christ. And we're able to do that. Why? Because the gospel makes it possible. Jesus transforms lives. He brings us hope. He brings us understanding. He brings us commonality. But alongside the church is the family. 
And it's important for us to, to realize, to recognize that, that our identity in the church is linked to our identity in the family. They are intertwined. They are connected. In the pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus, especially chapter 2 of Titus, you see, you see what? You see Paul, they are highlighting the relationship of the family to the leadership of the church. And in Titus, highlighting the, the relationship of the family to the types of roles that we play in the church and, and what our task should be, that, that we should be teaching each other, instructing each other, helping each other. There is this interconnectedness. We cannot be the families that God called us to be if the church is not a priority. No matter how much you may think your family is sound and, 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 and appropriate and so forth, if it's not a part of a church, if it's not connected to a community of faith, it's not all that it should be. And when I say family, understand that that I believe that the Bible has a has a has a in some ways a broad definition of that. Now I believe firmly, I believe scripture teaches one man, one woman for life. I believe that is the, the, the emphasis of Scripture. I believe that is the truth of Scripture. But I believe family also finds expression on the other side of the mistakes that we sometimes make. The single parent home. The home that's full of foster kids and adopted kids. I think those are expressions of, of God's grace and God's mercy as well. And, and I think we need to, to, to emphasize that. Even the family that just involves a single individual who chose not to get married. Those are all expressions of family, but they all find their expression and their fullness first and foremost in the church. Those two institutions God created to express himself are very much intertwined. Some of the themes that grow out in terms of a family is we're called to mutual respect and submission. A lot of times when we look at the, the family and the, the unit, we start really with, with Ephesians 5.22. And we read Ephesians 5.22 through, through 33, you know, Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Those, those passages, those ones that we like to debate so much as to exactly what they mean and what, what they're, they have in mind. But if we're going to read 22 through 33, we need to start with 15 through 21. 15 through 21, and Paul's instruction says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The context of the family and its capacity to, to be what it's supposed to be is, is the, the filling of the Spirit, the guidance of worship, 
the empowerment by the Father and the Son, and the expression of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That should define what a family looks like. That should define what the church looks like. You also have the, the emphasis of radical distinctiveness. 1 Peter 2.12 Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Paul, uh, Peter utters that phrase in the, in the context of the family and his instructions for the family. People should look at our families and see the power of grace, the role of unity, the presence of forgiveness, and how we interact. And then in doing so, be able to, to honor God because of what our families communicate. And all of that comes together as we, we point to Christ. Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's almost the exact same instructions we saw in, in Ephesians. And in both cases, it's right there in, again, the context of the family. Family is a place where we find strength, where we find hope. And yes, I understand. I, I had three siblings. I understand conflict in the family. Not that I ever caused it, of course. Being the youngest, I was the perfect one. But, uh, no. But I understand that sometimes that happens. But it's in those times that it happens, those moments that it happens, that we what? That we have to express forgiveness. James Dobson um, told a story of, of his kids that uh, has really stuck with me over the years. Hearing it, I heard it before Christy and I were even married, and it's really stuck with me. He says that whenever his kids would start to get in a fight, start to get in a tussle, would start to argue with each other, as kids so often do. He said quite often he would take them and he'd, he'd take them to the front window of their house and he'd, he'd make them look out the front window and he'd say, out there in that world, there, there are a lot of things that are ready to attack you, to hurt you, to cause you harm. There are a lot of things that, that are looking to destroy you and who you are. So in this house, on this side of that wall, this needs to be a place where we can find 
encouragement and support and help from each other. Because if we don't have this place to find that, how are we ever going to survive what's out there? And that's true both of the church and the home. This should be a place where we can be imperfect, but with a guidance toward being like Christ. This should be a place where we can encourage each other and help each other and, and walk with each other. Looking back at that passage we, we started with in Hebrews, we find what? Don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. Help one another. Life is too hard to do it on your own. And while we have Christ there with us, of course, we need each other. But we can only have each other if we're open to it here. If we're willing to communicate that here. If we're able to be real with each other here. If you run into one of your churchmates, one of your fellow believers, and they come in and they don't have the smile on their face that you expect or something like that. Don't chastise them for that. Encourage them in love. Pray for them in that moment. Help them to, to see they're not alone. This is a place where we should be able to hurt and find help. Not hurt and find, quote, correction for hurting. This morning, if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, some of this may not have made any sense to you at all. Perhaps you come from a family that's broken or perhaps you tried church before and it just really didn't work out because the church didn't represent Christ the way they should have. And you've turned away from the Savior because his sheep kind of pushed you in that direction. Let me just say to you this morning that Jesus is waiting with his hands open to embrace you and to hold you and to never let you go. All he asks from you is all that you are. That you would give your life to him. That you would surrender to his leadership. That you would surrender to his love. That you would turn away from the things that they only want to steal, kill, and destroy you anyway. And come to the one who wants to offer you life and hope and a future. Our church is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But I do know today that if you make that commitment, you're going to have a whole bunch of people love it on you.
and promising to walk with you in that journey. Maybe you're here and you are a believer. But your brothers and sisters have let you down along the way. Or your family was not what it should have been. And you experienced abuse or some sort of miscommunication of what it means to be a family. Jesus is still in the business of transforming lives. And though you know he saved your life and he is part of your life, understand that he's still working on you. And he's still offering you a future and a hope. And so if you need to rededicate or just just take that to him in, in prayer, this time of invitation is your, your opportunity to do that, to find encouragement, to find that restoration, to be renewed in that walk. Maybe there's other things on your heart, things that God's called you to. Maybe he's called you to ministry or to connect with somebody who's a neighbor that you've not connected with before, or at least not shared the truth of who Christ is before. Something he's laying on your heart this morning you need to surrender to. This is your chance to do that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for this place where we can find encouragement and help and family. I thank you for each person here this morning. God, I pray that you've been able to speak to their hearts and to their minds through my imperfections and my limitations, God, that you have moved in a special way through your spirit to to direct and call and lead each person here to a different mindset, a different set of actions, a different attitude as we leave here this morning. God, I pray that you help us to be responsive to that leadership. Pray that if there's anyone here who does not have a relationship with you, that you would draw them in your power and they would respond in faith. Pray for other decisions that might be on our hearts here this morning that you would make those very clear and help us to be responsive to that. Lord, use this time for your purpose, for your kingdom. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.